back down and shut your trap. It's time for keeping it sports with them three. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, I'll need some beer. Are you ready? You have to ask me nicely. Come on now, don't be bashful. Are you ready? Ready? place for the best sports talk and news surrounding each league. I can prove it with my usual flawless logic. Hey man, this time to do it my way. Uh, what's your name again? And now, here's your host, M3, Mike Rosansky. Good afternoon, everyone. Coming to you from Cherry Hill, New Jersey. It's time for Keeping Sports with M3, powered as always by the Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Hope you all doing well today. Hope you all having a great day on this, the first day of August. For personal reasons, it's my favorite month of the year, but uh, we'll get to that maybe at some point later this month. How you all doing out there? Hope you had a great week, great weekend, stayed safe and had fun, whatever it is you may have been doing. Now starting to, uh, you know, get that feeling in the air, people, with football just right around uh, the corner. Now the NBA is kind of taking a back seat for right now, especially due to the fact that there's been no movement on the Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving fronts. And baseball, even though we're in uh, the uh, – final stretch of things here the final two months of the season kind of in that part where they call it you know the dog days and where it starts to become a little bit of of a grind for these players we do have the excitement coming up with uh the trade deadline coming up tomorrow night at 6 p.m and it's gonna be exciting in this area especially considering you have two very good teams two top of the league teams in the Mets and the Yankees, who both realistically have shots at winning a World Series this year. And I give the Mets a lot of credit for what they've done in the last week, not just sweeping uh, both uh, halves of uh, the two-game series against the Yankees at Citi Field. And, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, the Mets, they had the pitching advantage in it. They... They took it more seriously, but to my Yankee fan brethren, come on, we we got to take that team seriously, and they're not so much as far as you know having to deal with them much in the regular season, but they're a legitimately good team. They're a legit, you know, they they haven't gotten to this point where we sit here on the first day of August with them what twenty six, twenty seven games. 27 games over 500 and a three-game lead in the division uh, with the second-best record in the National League for no reason whatsoever. Remember, they've done most of that without Jacob DeGrom, who will finally make his first start of the season tomorrow night in uh, Washington you know, th- this is something I'm sure Met fans, uh, Met players have long waited for because now you have the two anchors at the top of the rotation with Scherzer and as long as he's healthy, Jacob DeGrom. And, you know, that 
kind of left a bad taste in my mouth over the weekend with with uh, Jacob Drum. Here's the Mets. They're rolling right now. They sweep the Marlins when easily could have had an emotional letdown after how overly excited they were with uh, sweeping the mini two-game set against the Yankees. And DeGrom, even though he was asked by a, a, a member of the media, it wasn't like he just came right out and said it, still is of the mindset that he's going to opt out at the end of this season. I'm like, dude, you have not pitched in a big league game in over a year. You have not been able to stay consistently healthy in the last 13, 14 months. And you're still talking about potentially using your opt-out clause and thinking about free agency rather than what can you do to help this Mets team possibly end a 36-year drought without winning a World Series title? I don't know. That came off as a bit selfish, a bit tone-deaf to me. And I get it that, you know, all of this as far as getting the big paydays happened late for him because he didn't come up to the big leagues until he was, what, like 25, 26 years of age. But that should be the furthest thing from his mind right now, especially with the way the Mets are playing and the um, fact that he's been injured so much. It really did not sit well with me. And listen, as I said with the Yankees, you, know, you have to, you, you can't just act like all oh, those two games against the Mets were like spring training games, were just exhibition games. Because you know damn well, just like every Met fan out there has been pumping out their chests and uh, talking a lot of smack in the last couple of days, a lot of you immature Yankee fans, and, I, and I'm talking about those who are you know, 27 years old or younger and think that it's just your God-given birthright to win a World Series each and every single year and have pretty much lived a miserable existence for the last 13 years without them winning a championship, you know you would be doing the same damn thing to them. Now, they were able to turn things around and win three out of four against the dreadful, and I mean dreadful, Kansas City Royals over the last couple of days. I mean, outside of uh, you know, Brady Singler pitching for them the, the other night, there's, there's nothing to be excited about if you're a Kansas City Royal fan. I mean, yeah, you still have the, uh, the longtime guy, the champion in Salvador Perez, what are you hanging your hat on if you're a Kansas City uh, Royals fan? What, Bobby Witt Jr.? I and mean, he's played well, but he's also injured um, and hasn't played much recently. So the Yankees did what they were supposed to do there. Although, you know, yesterday's loss, you know, I don't want to get too much on Clay Holmes because he, even though he's 20 out of 23 in save opportunities, it was his third blown save in his last 14 appearances. Two of those blown saves were not his fault. Two of them were of the variety where he's coming in to clean up somebody else's mess and gave up a, a cheap run on a, on a single. Yesterday was the first time where, you no, know, 
and I know he had the uh, the outing against the Cincinnati Reds where he couldn't get an out, and Wandy Peralta almost bailed him out of that. But yesterday was the first time where you were really looking at Clay Holmes and like, wow, what was wrong with him? How how can he couldn't get anybody out? You thought that oh, one run lead with Holmes on the mound coming in to face the Royals. It was a lockdown, but hey, Salvador Perez had uh, a uh, different mindset there and left you with a, a bad taste in your mouth, uh, closing out what was a uh, successful weekend against the Royals. I mean, what has happened with the Yankees as of late is they have, it's not like they've fallen apart, it's they've kind of flatlined. And I told you a month ago that this was going to happen, that they were going, there was going to be a point where they were going to play 500 baseball for a little while. I mean, they were on a pace where you were thinking they were going to just boat race right past the 2001 Seattle Mariners 116 game, 116 win record there from 2001. But I figured at, at some point, A, there was going to be some nicks and bumps and bruises in the road to deal with. And at some point, you figured with how hot their starting pitching was, that that was going to calm down. Especially with them losing Luis Severino, who you now thankfully is starting a throwing program this week. And hopefully by, you know, say middle to end of this month, we can get him uh, back in that rotation. But the, the Yankees are by no means are a perfect team. Now, I've said it all along. There was going to be some upgrades that they needed to make at the trade deadline. The same goes with the Mets. And the Mets have made the, haven't made the big splash, have made a couple of small moves here, bringing in Vogel back, uh, making a trade over the weekend with the Reds, for some depth pieces in Tyler Naquin and uh, Philip DeLeap uh, to be part of uh, the bullpen. But both teams definitely do have some things that they could answer for at this deadline. And, you know, fans are freaking out because, oh, nothing's happened yet. Well, like, what's going on? Are we going to make any moves? Are we going to uh, make any waves at this deadline? People. There hasn't really been, outside of those two Met deals, haven't really been that many trades to speak of so far here. And a lot of the holdup has been based on, are the Nationals going to trade Juan Soto? A lot of people sitting around waiting on that. And those talks have reportedly come down to three teams, the Cardinals, Padres, and Dodgers. And we'll see if over the next, you know, 29 and a half hours here, the, the Nationals decide to make a move if they like one of the packages presented by these three teams. Because believe it or not, they, uh, unlike what many people thought, they're uh, not as in or love Yankee shortstop prospect Anthony Volpe as most of the rest of the league and most other talent evaluators think of this kid. So that's kind of driven the Yankees out of it. And the Mets, 
I told you all along, did not I did not think they had a chance at getting him because whether it's their current ownership, whether it's the new ownership, whether it's general manager Mike Rizzo, who seemingly has a lifetime opportunity there, they don't want to see Juan Soto go on to continued great success with a team in their own division. Some will call that short-sighted, saying, oh, get the best package possible. But I can somewhat understand not wanting to deal with that burden, not wanting to deal with that headache, especially if this kid continues up the Bond-slash-Griffey trajectory that most people expect him to have. But finally, a shoe dropped as far as the trade deadline uh, is concerned over the last couple days when on Friday the Mariners decide to be that big team to make the first splash here and acquired Luis Castillo from the Cincinnati Reds. Someone who, if you listen to the podcast the last two weeks, I've been saying I wanted the Yankees to go out there and get him. I thought that was the big fish. That was the big ticket item for them to get to add to a rotation that you have concerns about, whether it be with uh, Jamison Tyon um, looking worn out for the last month or Nestor Cortez and uh, getting to innings uh, marks that he's never pitched in his career. Luis Severino's injury and the fact that Jordan Montgomery has been kind of meh at, at best and uh, – leaving you wanting more assurity for that number two spot in the Yankee rotation heading into the postseason. Yep. Listen, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm disappointed. I was bummed out when I saw that he went to the Mariners on Friday. But at the same time, I understood it once I learned of the trade package. And the Yankees were willing to give up top prospects. They just weren't willing to go to the level that the Mariners did. See, I think I'd be sitting here today much more, maybe scorched earth isn't the correct term, much more angry, much more disappointed. Is that fair to say? If he, say, got traded to the Houston Astros, a team that I believe the Yankees are going to be going up against in the ALCS. But I can understand the the need for the Mariners to go out there and do something like this. They have not been in the postseason in over 20 years. The longest stretch for any active professional sports franchise amongst the four major sports in North America. It has been a long time. I mean, Ichiro was a rookie the last time they went to the playoffs. So they felt the need to go out there and make this kind of move, giving up their number one, three, and five prospects in their organization. And the equivalent of that trade for the Yankees would have been giving up Volpe, Jason Dominguez, and a young left-handed pitcher in AAA named Ken Waldachuk. And Brian Cashman was not willing to, to go there. And while at times in the past I've criticized Cashman for his unwillingness to trade top prospects or uh, perceived top prospects to go for that 
kill shot, go for a championship. Like the the one that I've always gotten on him for was not trading Eduardo Nunez or not putting Eduardo Nunez in a trade package that would have gotten them Cliff Lee back in 2010. I can almost understand his mindset here of not wanting to give them all up, A, and B, not wanting to give them up in a package for a 30-year-old pitcher that's a free agent in a year and a half when clearly there's other things that the Yankees are more concerned about uh, financial-wise, especially the future contract of Aaron Judge, potentially, a future contract potentially for Gleyber Torres, and the fact that you look around the diamond on this team, and there's a lot of guys that you don't project to be here forever. Like Josh Donaldson only has one year left on his contract, and I think a lot of Yankee fans wish that last year of his contract was this year, excuse me, rather than next year, considering how subpar and disappointing he's been. IKF is viewed as more of a Band-Aid kind of player. You've got a lot of guys in their 30s like Rizzo, like LeMahieu, Giancarlo Stanton, that you don't view as long-term Uh, pieces on uh, this team, at least in the case of Rizzo, and you're going to eventually need to replace those guys with younger players, whether it be Anthony Volpe, whether it be Jason Dominguez. Uh, One of these shortstop prospects is going to have to switch positions. uh, There's a a catching prospect named Austin Wells down there that is more uh, heavily projected as a first baseman, but even if he remains that catcher, going to need someone to eventually take over for either Trevino or Higashioka, because as great as Trevino has been, no one projects him to be doing this over a long-term pace. So you can understand why Cashman may be hesitant to give up some or all of these uh, prospects. Over the next 30 hours, you hope that he does something creative here because they need some help on this team. They need to add an arm to the bullpen, Uh, you know, proverbially someone that is capable of stepping in as the closer if necessary, if Clay Holmes is just about to fall apart here, but more preferably can step in and be locked down in that eighth inning. And... Add a starter of consequence, not, you know, one of these guys like a, you know, a Jaime Garcia that's just there to be an innings eater. I'm talking a guy that legitimately could take the rock in game two of the postseason and you have confidence in. And I don't know who that guy is right now, whether it's Frankie Matas or whether it's Carlos Rodon, which I'm kind of surprised that the Giants are talking about potentially trading him, considering they're just four games out for the third wild card spot and have only the Cardinals and the Phillies who currently sit in that third spot ahead of them. I mean, he's had a great year and he can opt out at the end of this year, but the Giants have never seemed like that kind of franchise that is willing to break up shop here and become sellers and they're amongst a few teams that have some 
tough decisions to make over the next uh, 30 hours here. Them, the Red Sox, and I know they're talking to the Mets about trading J.D. Martinez, but do they become full-on sellers and trade anybody that can get them any sort of return? Because they just seem like a team that is unable to get out of their own way. I mean, yeah, they're three and a half back for the third wild card in the American League. But they're in fifth place in the AL East right now behind the Orioles. And you look at it with the wild card standings, they have two, three, they have four teams to jump over to get into a uh, playoff spot. And no, not all of those teams is going to lose every single night. Some of them, they're going to have to play in their own right. And even as disappointing as the White Sox and the Guardians have been, teams like the Orioles and the Rays, even with all their injuries, are no pushovers. So, now the the Red Sox have some tough decisions to make there. And the Angels probably have the toughest decision of them all to make. And that's, do we end the Shohei Otani era and trade him for what would be an absolute incredible haul, knowing that whatever team we send him to would not just have him for this postseason, but potentially next postseason as well. I mean, you're getting, pun unintended, one of the great shows, one of the great work of arts in all of baseball, a guy that can do both things at incredibly high levels, but are they willing to pull that trigger? Are they willing to end that era and essentially become completely irrelevant losing Otani. Uh, the fact that Mike Trout is now dealing with uh, this uh, back issue and not knowing when he's going to come back. So they got some tough decisions to make there as well. It's going to be, it's going to be a fun next 30 hours. I do think that there's going to be, Something that surprises us, whether it's uh, Juan Soto, whether it's Otani getting traded. Maybe someone, maybe a pitcher that we did not think was available suddenly becomes available. But someone's going to make a big splash, something of the level of Verlander going to the Astros back in 2017 to show that, hey, we're here we're serious. We want to show that it's our time here in 2022. And I hope, for my sake at least, that that team is the New York Yankees. All right, got a lot to get to over the next about 40 minutes or so here. Give some thoughts on, the, of course, I've watched the last couple of days, the uh, part three and four of the captain give you some thoughts there on some of the things I saw in the, this segment of the documentary, um, mixing some football as well as, uh, pay my respects to the passing of one of sports greatest icons. So a lot to get to glad you could join me this week. So please sit back, relax, help. Put your feet up on the table if you feel like it. And continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back.
Welcome back to Keeping the Sports with M3 on this Monday afternoon. Now, I was maybe surprise was not the word to use, but I was caught off guard kind of by two things yesterday, both kind of dealing with the same story here. Now, I, I did not think I would get as emotional or sad about this, but yesterday morning, we lost one of the greatest winners, one of the greatest icons in all of professional sports when NBA Hall of Famer and Boston Celtics legend Bill Russell passed away. And first off, I didn't know that he was sick with anything, but when you see the the age that he was at, 88, nothing should really surprise you. I mean, we have lost a significant amount of legendary figures in the world of sports and entertainment in the last several years. And, you know, 88 is nothing to cry about. I I think all of us would sign up for that right now, considering how nothing in life is truly ever guaranteed. Tomorrow is not guaranteed for any single one of us. But not only was I caught off guard by that, but I was surprised with how sad I was, uh, truly sad I was about this. I'm not even making this up. Now, I, I went on social media and at around noontime, and all of a sudden, this popped up on my Twitter feed after you know, it was initially posted by a member of his family. And I'm like, oh, no, no not, not Bill Russell. I, because, you know, most of my life I've grown up despising the Boston Celtics organization. They've had great players nonstop, seemingly, have had teams that have made my Nets team a living hell. Hell, the even bigger living hell is that trade that we made with them that ended up in them getting uh, Tatum, Brown, and most of the core of the team that they have now. But I never had a hatred toward Bill Russell because he A, he was before my time and B, he was if there was ever someone that you could take a picture of them and put it next to the term class personified, that was Bill Russell. And it's not just when it comes to his accolades on the court. I mean his accolades on the court are almost are pretty much unmatched. And uh, I don't think it's hyperbole to say that he is the greatest winner in all of North American sports history. When you take into a fact that he is an 11-time NBA champion, two of those, the final two, came with him as a player coach for the late 60s uh, Boston Celtics. In fact, at one point... He won eight consecutive NBA championships. And I know the league was different back then. There were lesser teams, but 
A championship is a championship to me, and there's no taking away the greatness of that kind of accomplishment. Add in the fact that he was a five-time MVP in this league. The the only uh, player to hold more than him was uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Made the All-Star team 12 times. Was an, was a three-time uh, uh, first-team NBA player. Was not just a really good scorer, but was an all-world def- defensive player in uh, the NBA. And uh, because of that, he not only was part of the all of the anniversary teams, 25th, 35th, 50th, and 75th, and will be part of the anniversary teams from here until the end of time, but he had his uh, number retired by the Boston Celtics originally in, uh, in 1972, was a two-time NBA cha- uh, NCAA champion in uh, 55 and uh, 56, and even won championships in high school. I mean, who has that kind of resume? I, mean, I know Yogi Berra uh, won 10 World Series titles, but I don't think he has the minor league or high school acclaim that Bill Russell did with college and high school. And this guy was just an all-world player. That's why he's always discussed amongst the greats, amongst uh, anybody arguing, oh, who's in the Mount Rushmore of NBA history? Well, he's right up there in the discussion, in uh, the conversation with whoever you want your four to be. He's always a candidate to be up there. And even even more so the greatness of a player he was is the greatness of a person that he was. Especially when you consider what he had to deal with back then. And listen, unfortunately, racism still exists in our country. Unfortunately, there's still a portion of our society that for whatever reason they give and no reason is is good enough to justify their position, views someone of a different skin color or a different race as a lesser person than them, which I have always maintained the stance that if you're judging someone by their skin color, their race, their ethnicity, then you are clearly a lesser person than than that person you're judging. I as as awful as it is right now, think back to that time period when he was uh, playing, when he was growing up. It was much, much. Much, much worse than it is right now. Racism was considered an everyday part of life, of society. That's how backwards thinking they were back then. And he he dealt with it from his own fan base and got hate from the Boston media based on the fact that, oh, he wouldn't sign autographs for white children based on uh, the the some of the hate and disrespect he was getting from white adults. Even it went so far as the Boston media labeling him as arrogant and egotistical for uh, and self-centered for not doing that. And, and it, it got to him so much that he wouldn't even attend his own Jersey retirement ceremony 
back in 72. Didn't even attend his Hall of Fame uh, induction in 75. Now, thankfully, years later, those injustices would be righted. He he got his ring in a private ceremony uh, with NBA Commissioner Adam Silver back in 2019. And then in 95, the Boston Celtics, when they had um, moved to what was known as the Fleet Center, has since become TD uh, Garden, held a second retirement jersey ceremony for him. And I got to say, it brought, almost brought a tear to my eye watch, rewatching uh, the clip of uh, that early this morning with seeing a standing ovation for that man that almost didn't end and a well-deserved one considering the hate that they gave him just based on his skin color, even for as much joy and happiness he brought that city with the success of that franchise. And you look at that ceremony, I mean, you had Larry Bird show up. You had Kareem there. Uh, you saw the emotion in him when he began to talk about how Wilt Chamberlain made him both a better player and a better person on and off the court going having to play against him. And then, you know, for him to rightfully so be awarded by President Obama in 2011 a uh, a presidential medal of freedom for every um, thing that he had to endure over his career and his life. And even showing a, a sign of solidarity with not just the, the NFL, but the country by and large part that were taking a knee um, during, during the national anthem to protest protest the racial injustice and uh, the uh, racial violence that was uh, going on in uh, this country. Take As he posted with that picture, proud to take a knee and to stand tall against social injustice. This was not just a great player that we lost, people. This was not just a great winner, a great champion. This was a great man. This was a great humanitarian and someone who we should all strive to be like in our lives. So rest in peace to the greatest champion in the history of American sports, Bill Russell. There will never be another champion like you, but I can only pray and hope that we have many, many more people like you to come because you were someone even beyond your on the court achievements, someone we should all recognize, idolize, and acknowledge. 
Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see, at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. Welcome back to Keeping It Sports with M3 on this Monday afternoon here. Remember, as always, you can find the podcast all across social media via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Each one of them will have the live video feed each week, as well as the podcast uh, links they can find on either pod beam.com or Spotify. Let me tell you quick uh, where on social media you can find me. Facebook.com slash keeping it sports with M3. That that you can go there, click the like button, click the follow button, get the live feed each and every single week as I go live on Facebook, as well as you know, either later that day or the next night, post the podcast version. Uh in case you don't feel like staring at me for about an hour, hour and 10 minutes. Uh, it's also available on Twitter at M3Rosansky. That's at M-T-H-R-E-E-R-O-Z-A-S-K-Y. As well as the official podcast account for um, this on Twitter is at Keeping It Sports. And find me on Instagram, Keeping underscore it underscore sports underscore with underscore M3. I'm sure if you just type in keep it at sports with M3 um, on Instagram, you'll find it, but that's uh, the official title. They have me go by there. Now I was just talking about uh, Bill Russell and all he had to uh, endure and deal with as one of the great champions in uh, the history of sports. And I'm sure the one of uh, the great champions in my lifetime had a great deal of respect for him. And that is, of course, Yankee legend Derek Jeter. And as you all know, I've been keeping track, keeping tabs on this documentary that, that ESPN is doing, a seven-part documentary um, entitled The Captain. And I've got to say, this has been a phenomenal watch so far. This has been something that, quite frankly, you'll learn a lot from it. And 
so far, I don't think, you know, like we talked about with, when it came with the last dance, who was going to be the villain in all of this? Because in that, even though it was supposed to be about the late 90s Chicago Bulls and their run to their second three-peat, it became more about Michael Jordan as it went on. Well, from the beginning, we, we've we known that this was going to be all about Derek Jeter, but you had different side trips, different avenues that were explored throughout this. You know, talking about the trade uh, in spring training of 99 that brought Roger Clemens from the Blue Jays to the Yankees for David Wells, Graham Lloyd, and, and Homer Bush. And how there was kind of a, a stunned, not just a stunned and unhappy reaction from Yankee fans everywhere because of how much um, David Wells was loved in this area. But they were coming off of a record-setting win season in 98, a dominant run to winning uh, their second title in three years, and the fact that Clemens was not loved by Yankee fans, was outright hated because of his years in Boston, and the fact that he used to treat some of the Yankee players, including Jeter, as target practice. And Jeter even admits in this, and Jeter has been very honest in this. That's what I like. You know, the, during his playing days, we didn't get this kind of honesty out of Derek Jeter that we are getting so far in this uh, documentary. But you're getting his real, true feel on things. You're getting a a sense of the human being, the, the real side of Derek Sanderson Jeter that we never got during this playing this, admitting that he did not like Roger Clemens, even though he didn't know him. He was basing it off of his uh, you know, past with always getting hit by this guy. And how can you blame him there? And then you would see uh, you know, his relationship with A-Rod continuing to uh, play out there. Or the, the falling apart of his relationship uh, with A-Rod. First starting uh, with uh, that interview in Esquire magazine, they would play that that soundbite at the beginning of part three, but then would go into their friendship, including how their friendship led to a kind of awkward situation for the Yankees. In, 90, in August of 99, the Yankees were involved in one of the, the great brawls of that dynasty era when uh, early in August they uh, got into the fight with the Seattle Mariners uh, after uh, the uh, reliever Frankie Rodriguez got thrown out of the game for throwing at I believe it was Chuck Knobloch if, if I remember correctly and then he sent poor Joe Girardi flying to the ground with a, a haymaker. And meanwhile, this, this fight's going on, and the cameras kind of catch Jeter and A-Rod yucking it up, leading to Chad Curtis not just confronting him on the 
field as they're heading back into the dugout, but waiting until the media reached the uh, clubhouse after the game and them getting into a confrontation, or at least Chad trying to create a confrontation, but Jeter being man enough to walk away uh, from the situation. Jeter <laughs> even jokingly saying, hey, if I had the power for us to, that kind of power that got us to get rid of Chad Curtis, I would have given myself a contract extension long time ago. So, you know, he's had some funny moments in uh, this. But as I was saying, you haven't had the true feel of who's the villain in this yet. Is it Roger Clemens who they show the whole thing with him and Piazza. And still to this day, I will never understand how Roger Clemens was not thrown out of game two of the 2000 World Series. I mean, first off, he throws at Piazza's head earlier that season. And then we get to game two, and Piazza had had this history of just hitting bomb after bomb after bomb off of Roger Clemens. So Clemens not only throws at his head that season, but then early in game two, Piazza hits one up the middle against Clemens that breaks his bat, and Clemens takes the barrel of the bat and throws it toward the first baseline a couple of feet ahead of Piazza. I, the barrel of the bat with the, the pointed shreds at the end of it could be used as a weapon, could have seriously hurt Oh, Mike Piazza, he's throwing it in his direction. How is he not thrown out of that game? I mean, that, to me, between that and the headhunting of Piazza is the clearest example, if you even need one, that Roger Clemens was on steroids, especially back in 2000. This wasn't just a, oh, he started doing it when he was with the Astros kind of thing, or he was just doing it in, in Toronto. No, no. He was doing steroids when he was with the New York Yankees, and the Yankees benefited off of that. So is he the villain of this, or is it A-Rod? The A-Rod who... Um, you know, made some comments to Esquire magazine that began the downfall of their relationship, began the downfall of their friendship that Alex thought was a brotherhood, but Jeter clearly was well did not view it that way and felt felt slighted, felt betrayed by someone that he had become good friends with. And now, Jeter, you know, like I said, gets very personal in, in all of this when he talks about how he has trust issues. He, you know, if someone crosses him, if someone, you know, says or does something that he feels is a form of betrayal, he'll cut them out of his life. He will just flat out push them out of his life. They, they went into one point where he's, he was talking about how he had a close friend in in high school, someone that was part of his core all, all throughout school. And then they got out of high school and he f finds out that this guy was someone that was not a big fan of interracial marriage. And as we know, Derek's father is black. His mother is white, and Jeter wasn't going to stand for that. 
and that guy's been out of his life. So, you know, even though A-Rod came to him once and and asked for forgiveness, Jeter was willing to give that to him, but he wasn't giving it with the with the second time. He was not uh, forgiving him when he went on the, the Dan Patrick show and the topic of their contract extensions came up. A-Rod just... You know, a year after Jeter got his 10 years for 180, A-Rod, you know, broke the record for contract given to a, a professional athlete in uh, um, North American sports by getting 10 for 252 from the Texas Rangers and saying in that interview, quote, there's not one thing he does better than me. And that began the slow but steady downfall of their relationship to the point it's at today the, where they're not friends. They they coexist when they're in the same place. It's going to be interesting. You know, this past weekend was Yankees Old Timers Day. You know, neither one of them have come back for one of these yet because I don't think they view themselves as, you know, old guys. But at some point you figure they're going to be back at the stadium for one of these. Or... They're going to come back if there's, you know, maybe Jeter is back when Paul O'Neill's jersey is retired uh, later this month. Or, you know, seven years from now, when it's the 20-year anniversary of their 2009 championship team, and they celebrate that. Is that going to be the first time the two of them are back at the stadium together? So, tell me, interesting to see how they react in the in the same place as each other. There have been a couple people though have come off as a little bit whiny, come off as a, a little bit annoying in this. First off, you know, Eric Chavez has got to be sitting there shaking his head, looking at some of the comments that he made as a younger player, such as. Uh, in the ALDS in 2000, when the Yankees were going up against the A's, he, he said, quote, they've won enough times. It's time for some other people to have some glory here. They had a great run. They've done a phenomenal job, but it's time. And the Yankees would go out and you know, blow them out in game five of the division series. You know, scored six runs in the the top half of the first, and uh, leaving the A's uh, shaking their heads. So he comes off as a little bit annoying. You had Benny Bagnati, who in the Subway Series uh, in 2000 thought that the Mets were going to win it in five, and the Yankees blew right past them, including. Uh, when the the Mets pulled the very embarrassing moment prior to Game Four, having the Baja men there to sing "Who Let the Dogs Out," and Jeter essentially ended that series uh, on the first pitch of the game when he hit uh, that bomb off Bobby Jones. Even though, you know, that one of the four titles that they won, that group won together. That one came off as more of a sigh of relief than a celebration considering you know they didn't uh view the the Mets as someone in their league they viewed them as just the Mets and they'll figure out a way 
to lose. You also had Nomar's whining and complaining, which now they're going to get into the 04 team probably in the next episode where the Red Sox made the historic comeback against the Yankees. But I will say this right now. It has always brought a warmness to my heart that Nomar Garcia Parra was traded at the 04 trade deadline and did not get to be part of that historic comeback with uh, the Boston Red Sox against the Yankees. At least there's that satisfaction there. But you also see the side of, of Jeter that wouldn't accept losing. I mean, they, co- they come off of losing a heartbreaker in the 01 World Series. A World Series that, you know, they, they seemed emotionally exhausted about coming after you know, 9-11 and the fact that the team was getting older. You had a lot of pieces that weren't going to be there the next year like Paul O'Neill and Scott Brosius. And they had to overcome a 2-0 deficit to the A's, had to beat uh, the Mariners and their record-setting 116-win season. And they just went up against a a Diamondbacks team that, you know, whether it be home field advantage or just having the two great aces came in their way of what would have been one of the, the you know, the greatest feats in baseball history, winning four titles in a row, five in six years. But Moza unexpected ninth inning there uh, blew the game in game seven. But Jeter didn't handle losing well. You know, whether it be he was angry in the trainer's room after that game or the next year when they they lost in the first round to the Anaheim Angels, off seasons, he was hard to deal with after losing. Did not like losing. Didn't accept uh, losing. And it's a mindset that has developed amongst the Yankee fans to this day. You would also see the, while he didn't seek out being a star, didn't seek out being a celebrity, because of how great of a player he had become and how much winning he was doing, it was something that just happened. It, you know, whether it be the commercial with George Steinbrenner or the the New York tabloids, you know, reporting every single little thing, inc- including, you know, the the uh, the fact that when he was when A Rob was traded to the Yankees, they had to have Jeter come in for his press conference even though it was the middle of February, and he's typically not in New York in February, just to avoid it being a big, ugly scene. So you've learned a a lot throughout this. It's been a phenomenal watch so far. And, no, there's still more to come. I mean, we're going to see, you know, more play out between him and A-Rod. We're definitely going to see how things played out between him and Cashman, when he became a free agent after the 2010 season. So even though A-Rod right now comes off as the main villain, no, Cashman still has time to to take that that title away. But 
I've very much enjoyed this, very much uh, loved this documentary uh, from uh, the beginning. We've gotten to learn so much about Derek Jeter, the person, the man that he was so guarded against during his playing career. But thankfully, now post-playing career, has opened that door, opened that window to all of us learning more about him, more than we ever thought we did know. All right, going to take one last break here, come back on the other side, and finish things up for this week. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Welcome back to Keeping Sports from M3. Only a few more minutes left here, but uh, let's finish things up with some uh, thoughts on the NFL. Which, you know, I want to go back to something that I talked about last week, and that was the Kyler Murray contract extension. Because what came out from that was a very interesting tidbit, a very interesting, you know, clause in that contract, which quite frankly comes off as shameful, comes off as a little bit embarrassing for the Cardinals organization, that they had to put in a clause there for Kyler for there to be for him to have four hours of independent studying, independent prep time each game week to prepare for uh, that week's opponent. I mean, never before have we seen a player have to put some, have that be put in their contract. But there's been a, a lot of questions in the last, you know, eight to nine months about Kyler Murray's maturity level, uh, how much he truly prepares for the game, and um, whether he is just always about going off script and more concentrated in using his uh, raw given athleticism than sticking to a true game plan. And it got such attention, such uh, you know, backlash, such criticism, that the Cardinals two days later removed it from the contract. So I mean, it's shameful enough that you had to put that in there. But you come off as looking like even bigger knuckleheads, uh, big, even more embarrassing, that you had to, that you decided to backtrack on it and remove it from there. And kind of shameful, if, if you ask me. To, to me, the only thing as shameful or obnoxious is whoever this defensive coordinator is in the NFL that decide to come out with uh, comments uh, that's about Lamar Jackson saying that, oh, even if he wins the MVP 12 times, I don't think he'll ever be a number one as a quarterback. First off, I hate when these guys come out with these anonymous quotes. If you're going to say it, put be a man to put your name behind it. And secondly, have you not watched Lamar Jackson the last couple of years? Yeah, he's dealt with 
uh, injuries last year. But when he's been on the playing field, he's easily a top 10 quarterback in this league. And at some point in the next 12 months, whether it's by the Ravens or it's by somebody else, he's going to get paid in that fashion. And uh, speaking of uh, players getting paid, finally, another two you know, off-season nightmares came to an end this past week when uh, uh, both DK Metcalf and Debo Samuels got contract extensions from the Seahawks and the 49ers, respectively. Now, uh, DK Metcalf got three years for $72 million with $58.2 million guaranteed, even getting $30 million signing bonus um which is the highest ever for a wide receiver. And it has set him up so that he can become a free agent again at 27. For the Seahawks case, better hope that you get, you know, a real living, breathing quarterback in there. Now, Drew Locke and Geno Smith are not the answers. I mean, DK Metcalf is going to become a bit of a whiner and complainer if he's got those two guys thrown to him because he's not going to then be able to put up the numbers that he wants to put up if he's got, you know, subpar quarterback play. As much of a physical freak as he is, he was able to put up those numbers because he had a scrambler and an accurate scrambler in Russell Wilson as his quarterback all of this time. And, you know, Russ, even for his... You know, a less disadvantageous size was able to take advantage of things down the field based on Metcalf's height and his athleticism to just be able to jump over uh, defenders down the field. So Metcalf, even though he's saying all the right things, is probably praying, man, I hope we draft some good quarterback relatively soon because... He's not going to be putting up the numbers with those two guys. And Debo Samuels, his three-year extension, he got $58.1 million guaranteed on the $73.5 million deal he agreed to yesterday, becoming the seventh wide receiver this offseason to sign a deal worth at least $24 million a year. And now prior to this offseason, only DeAndre Hopkins hit that mark. And My concern with Debo Samuel is he does not want to play running back anymore, or as they've coined the position that he plays, wide back. He wants to be exclusively a wide receiver. Well, that what he did last year increased his value, increased it so much to why he got this big payday, why the 49ers made the postseason, why he became such a special talent for for the 49ers and for teams to have to deal with in the, the league here. It was, you know, something that, you know, he doesn't want to do long term because I can understand the physical toll that it's going to take uh, on him and having to... deal with defenders, deal with 
the bruising, the beating that running back has to go through. But you worry about the uh, impact that it's now going to have on the 49ers. It's now going to deal with him as a uh, as a player, or and as well, you know, with uh, Trey Lance now taking over as uh, the quarterback there, since they're clearly ready to move on to from Jimmy Garoppolo. I mean talked about last week, they've given him permission to seek trades elsewhere. And we'll see where he ends up, if anywhere, before the start of this season. I want to close out with this. Uh, we finally got some resolution, at least for now, on the Deshaun Watson situation. At around 9 a.m. this morning, it was announced that Deshaun Watson will be suspended for the first six games of the season uh, due to uh, the off-the-field's discretions by him. The decision was uh, made by the NFL's disciplinary officer, um, retired judge uh, Sue L. Robinson. And, you know, looking at this, a couple things. One, I, I don't understand why there were only four of the 25 women that filed lawsuits against him for inappropriate sexual conduct. I don't understand why there were only four testimonies by four of them. I mean, what was it the, the fact that uh, uh, only four of them would talk or... Only four of them presented credible evidence for the NFL to go by. Like, and clearly, the fact that you had 25 women filing lawsuits, there was an, enough to have this full investigation that's taken years to come to a resolution, taken years for us uh, to get to the point that we're at this morning. As I said, maybe only four of them were willing to talk. But clearly, he had to pay off you know, 25 women in order to prevent more serious actions, more serious uh, problems coming his way. And uh, now the... To add to all the chaos, the confusion, you know, Watson is not going to be fined at all in this. And I guess the Cleveland Browns, maybe they they figured that that was going to happen. That's why they structured his contract in the way that it, they did, because he's only making $1 million this year. So he's going to be making $46 million in the next four years of this contract on a, a five-year, $230 million fully guaranteed deal. You know, it just, it kind of, it kind of, all of this feels light, if you ask me, because I know the NFL pr wanted to suspend him for at least 12 games. Him, the Browns, uh, people representing him, 
that continued to claim innocence in all of this uh, thought that it should be a lighter suspension uh, thought that he should only get no no two to four games here which to me would have been an even bigger upcry than there has been uh, so far today but no I don't think we've seen truly the end of this the NFL now has three days to appeal this ruling uh, and if they do appeal it, even though the the NFL PA put out that press release last night saying they would respect the decision and wouldn't appeal it and hopes that the, the league does the same, the league now has three days to appeal the decision. And the appeal would be heard by Roger Goodell or by his designated appointee. And, you know, I just... Like, I, I feel like we still have so much more here to come when it comes to this. Because how can you have a guy that has, as I said, 24 or 25 civil suits against him? But uh, only is uh, getting suspended six games. You, I mean, you look at it, Calvin Ridley is getting a year for gambling. DeAndre Hopkins got six games for PEDs. And I know th- those are things that we actually knew would happen. We have physical proof that they happened, whereas the, the Watson stuff is a uh, he said, she said kind of uh, situation. But... Quite frankly, none of this, as far as the length and the final outcome of the suspension, really make a lot of sense to me. Because the NFL has been trying uh, so very hard the last couple of years to show that they are sensitive when it comes to issues involving women. That they are, uh, they want women to know that they they care about, care and respect their rights and. Uh, want them to feel a- as equal part of the uh, the NFL fan base. So, no, I don't. I don't think we've seen the end of this by a long shot. I think that this is going to become more complicated as things go on here, and I would be surprised if it's just. Six games that Deshaun Watson is truly getting suspended for. I and mean, as of right now, he'll be missing the opener at the Panthers, home games against the Jets and Steelers, a, a road matchup against the Falcons, and uh, then home games against the Chargers and Patriots, making him only eligible to play seven road games and four home games this season. I've I would be surprised if come Thursday it has not been announced that the the league has filed an appeal against uh, uh, Deshaun Watson. And if Roger Goodell and company are 
seeking um, more justice, more uh, punishment here. Because clearly they wanted this to be longer. They want. They felt that Deshaun had committed a worse uh, penalty or deserved more of a, p- a penalty than he's getting in uh, this case. So it remains to be seen how much, if any, Deshaun Watson plays this season. And that, my friends, was Keeping It Sports with M3 for Monday, August 1st, 2022. Everyone, please have a great week. Stay safe. Have fun with whatever you're doing. Have a great rest of your day. Great night. And I'll talk to you guys again. Same time next Monday. Until then, peace. We have to go. Good night, everybody. I have had enough of you. Thank you for all the fun. Thank you. Hey, shut up, will ya? I don't want to see you. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to smell you. Now leave. I'll be back.